Hello, my name is Beth Fisher Yoshida, and I am a professor of practice at Columbia University in the city of New York. I'm the program director of the Master of Science in Negotiation and Conflict Resolution, amongst different titles. But what I'm really excited about is my new book that's coming out in January 2023 called New Story, New Power, A Woman's Guide to Negotiation. I'm very excited to have as my guest on today's podcast, Mary Kay Eder. And in order to do justice to her illustrious career, I'm going to ask Mary Kay to please say a few words about herself as an introduction. Well, if there's only a few words, I'll be very fast. So my name's Mary Kay Eder. I'm a retired major general in the US Army. And when I retired, I decided I wanted to write. So I have authored several books over the past few years, the most recent being The Girls Who Stepped Out of Line Stories About World War II. My next book will come out next year, too. Wow. Okay. Looking forward to that, Mary. Thank you. So as we've discussed, there are a couple of topics we'd like to talk about, but I'd like this to be a free-flowing conversation. And if something else comes to mind that you want to say or I want to say, we'll just put it in there. So first, um, how many years were you actually in the Army? 36. 36. Wow. Okay. In that big 36 year span, can you just give us a couple of highlights about your career there? And also since you've retired, any highlights about what you're doing now in addition to writing? Sure. My first five years were active in the army. And then after that, I went into the reserves where I spent the next 20 years. And then my last 10 years were active again. I think one of the biggest things I learned during my time in the army is everything is a negotiation whether you're talking about an assignment, uh, uh, requesting a schooling opportunity, preparing for a promotion, where you want to be and what you want to do. You always have to negotiate and be aware of the competition as you do this going forward. Okay, so when you say competition, would that be other members inside the Army? Like, who do you define as your competition? Well, it will vary with each, each instance. But yes, if you're talking about promotion, Am I competitive with my peers? What do I need to do to be more competitive for a promotion, for a selection? Does, does this person next to me have more experience or better opportunities? And how do I make myself be more competitive in this arena? So some of that is requesting and some of that is preparing and some of that is knowing, knowing how the system works and being able to not manipulate it but make sure you're in the right place to take advantage of all it offers. Yeah, so I'm going to ask you a question that might sound a little naive, but when you were looking at your competition, let's just say in terms of promotion, were you all looking at only other women or just other soldiers, other people in the Army? Like who, who was your competition, that pool of people? Oh, your, your competition is everybody who's at the same level you are. You really feel this most in the beginning, I think, as you would in any business where you're first starting out and all of you are equal at the same level and all jockeying for position to be noticed, to be rewarded, to be given special projects and how you move up with those. And then after a while, that seems to recede a bit. And it's not till you get almost at the level of the senior ranks or C-suite that that competition comes back in. And it's with everyone who is in the same position looking for the same opportunities. Yeah, I would imagine that like other organizations, it's kind of structured as a pyramid, right? So when you go up, it gets narrower and more competitive, maybe. And at the top, it's uh, more like a needle. 
have to thread the needle there. Okay. So I'm curious, um, you were in the Army, you mentioned both active and in reserve for quite a long time, for 36 years. How did you decide on that as a career choice? I don't think initially that I did. I initially wanted to have three years in the Army as a way to get started in my career. And my career of choice was going to be public relations, marketing, uh, journalism, all of those types of things. I didn't quite find it in my first three years. So I got into the profession I wanted through the reserves, and then I wanted to stay with it. So what profession was that when you were in the reserves? <clears throat> I did get into communications, public relations. Okay. And then I worked at it as a civilian working for the Army. So I got to try it both ways. So I had some incredible, incredible opportunities in both sides of that profession. Uh, including a good five-year stint in Germany, working at an international education institution. So there's quite a bit of negotiations that go on there with working with international partners, how you determine what is taught, who teaches it, and where. Absolutely. So then when you came back into active service, you continued in that same career with communications and public relations within the Army. Yes, and with the Department of Defense at the higher levels too. Okay, okay. So then when you were in the Department of Defense, you had to also negotiate across branches, right? I would imagine. Yes. And then you have to learn their cultures. Oh, interesting. So it's not only the German culture, you had to learn other branches of the military culture as well. And they are very different, which was news to me. You know, if you use a certain term, you, you quickly learn, oh, we don't say that here. Oh, we don't do it that way. So okay. there's quite a bit to learn. So it makes you cautious. I was more cautious in Germany being afraid that I speak German, but I was afraid I would use a wrong word or a wrong expression and create an international incident, which never happened, but it doesn't mean I stopped worrying about it. Well, that's good. So, you know, it's, it is interesting that I was just having a conversation recently with somebody about culture and communicating across cultures. And I think one of the misconceptions is that when you are of the same culture, and there are many ways of defining culture, that it's easier to communicate. But in actuality, that's when you sometimes get caught off guard. Like you were mentioning, if you're thinking about different branches of the military, one might think that there's more similarity. But then when you're talking about understanding each of the cultures, then it really does make a difference. It's, a, it it's very unique, <clears throat> and it's almost like a subculture. So if you're not one of us, you're not. So you have to understand how to speak so that you can be heard. Interesting. So when you got to your higher level, and major general is pretty serious level, then what was it like for you speaking with other people at a comparable level in terms of across the military? Did that make a difference? In, in terms of like speaking to people of different levels, but you're all highly achieved you achieve very highly at that level. Right. You can you can certainly tell as you walk into a room what the expectations are. You know, there's an expectation you have a certain level of experience. There is an expectation that you know how to address problems, that you know how to ask the right questions to get at. What is the strategy here? What are the options? What else have you tried? What should we be looking at that we haven't? And even within that, there are some cultural, there's some terminologies that are um, unique to the military. So one of them is, well, that's just a self-licking ice cream cone. 
<laughs> what does that mean? It means it's something that sounds simple, facile, easy, but it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Prophecy. Mm-hmm. So we want to take this route because we know it will succeed because it's so simple and easy. So self-licking ice cream cup. You don't want that. That's hysterical. And is that across all branches or is that unique to one one place? I've heard it uh, from di- various different branches. Wow. So interesting. So I'm going to ask also maybe an obvious question, but as a woman in the military, what do you think were some um, unique challenges that you may have had in terms of like negotiating different things? And what was not really an issue that you were a woman, if there were those things too? One of the things you'll hear, especially in the army is, oh, we only see green. You know, we see everybody as being green. Although there are only 17% women in the military. And as you get higher, the percentages are even lower. When you come to the senior executive ranks, it's less than 1%. Wow. So at that point, the the term is, oh, you're a unicorn. Look, there's the unicorn. So you're, there are very few peers you have. So I used to describe it as you walk a tightrope. You just don't look down. I can do my job. I know how to do my job and I can do it well. And I will tell you what I am doing. I have no problem with getting a seat at the table because there had better be one for me. Because there will be one for my peers. So you don't have a seat for me. I'm walking out until you fix it. No, I, I can behave in the same way as my peers do about how the protocol things work because that is expected. So then if you if it was like they say lonely at the top and it sounds like being the unicorn, being unique in your role is also similar in other situations where you may have a senior executive, a CEO of other companies who really is also alone in his or her role, then they look outside to other people yes. in comparable roles. So is, is that what you did? And how did you look for camaraderie sure. there? You always have to have someone to talk to, to vent to, to be able to say, this, this situation was different. I didn't know quite what to do with it. Have you seen anything like it? We all need somebody to bounce ideas off of, to, to talk to. And you can't find it within, you can't find it below, and you have to find it on the outside in one way or another. And did you find that those messages or lessons that you learned carried over into your situation? Yes, they did. So there was more commonality than, even though it's a different industry, different people. There's a great deal of commonality. I think the only difference is, and I'll tell you, I spent a year with a PR firm in DC as a a fellow or an intern. It was an army program. And I could do everything they could do except a budget because I wasn't used to doing budgeting the way they did. But otherwise it was exactly the same. And I found that to be very, reassuring and confidence building. You know, I I can do anything in this industry that I need to. Okay. So it's almost like um, different silos or functions, but they cross over. So one would be like the military versus a different kind of organization, like an NGO or a for-profit. And then there's the functionality of the PR and communications, which is common across right. the industries you're talking about. That's great. Okay. So then um, you said... Everything's a negotiation. I think I might have quoted you on that one. So then some of them, I would imagine, are formal and you know they're coming ahead of time. So there's a certain type 
of preparation you would do. And then other times it's just impromptu. It happens in the moment and they're more informal. So mm-hmm. can you give us a little bit of insight into how you prepared and when did you even become conscious that you needed to prepare? Because not everybody is born preparing for their negotiations. Well, I think that in a military sense, I would look at them in three ways. There's tactical, which is tasks, because it's a negotiation. I need a dentist appointment on Monday. No, we don't have openings on Monday. Well, what about Wednesday? No, we're going to give you Tuesday. I don't want Tuesday. So small tasks, tactical. Operational is everything I'm planning to do this month. Um, Do we have receipts coming in? Do we have the annual meeting with the board? What are we doing this month? And then strategic is long-term. How does this fit our vision and our long-term goals? So I think even in preparing for the tactical episodes of negotiation, you're thinking about how does this fit into the bigger plan? And then how does it work with where we're going long-term and where we want to be? So there's those three levels of it. And I think after you do this a while, you embed it in your subconscious. So I don't have to consciously think about some preparations because I will do it automatically now. I will automatically go through my calendar for the next month and line things up so that they hopefully make sense and follow as they should. And that I am keeping in tune with what my long-term plan and goals are and giving myself time to prepare and read ahead of time. So what we always say for the senior executive is you give them a read ahead. Here, this is what's going to happen in the agenda for Veterans Day. Step one, step two, step three, and then you talk and you talk about these things. And I would look at that the day before and go, hmm, I don't want to talk about those things. I'm going to add in some other things. But usually you have the freedom to do that. And I think it keeps you consistent with your own personal brand and it helps you move through the process much more smoothly. There's a couple of books on strategic intuition, and I think that's some of what this becomes. So that the more you study, particularly for attorneys, the more you study the law, when you're confronted with a new situation, you let it marinate in your subconscious for a few days, and it will come up with a case law that will help support what your new focus or ruling or decision should be with how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. That was a long answer to a short question. No, 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 no. I love it. And I'm going to be building on that and asking you more about that to help a little bit unpack a little bit of what you said there, because you gave like tactical, operational, strategic, and I can just feel there's a difference in what we're doing, but there might be some other commonalities across them. So more specifically, what is, I mean, you said, okay, you looked at your calendar. That's a very for tactical and all that. And for the operational But in thinking about strategic also, and maybe the other levels as well, there's always somebody else you're negotiating with, right? So, I mean, we can't negotiate with ourselves, but you're negotiating with somebody else. What are some of the things you did to better understand your negotiating partner, especially if they were unknown to you? I think that was one of the greatest lessons I learned from living in Europe for so long. It is not just how the other person comes to the table or the team comes to the table and what they need, want, and are after. It is how they see you. So we, I learned quite a bit about how this particular country views its partners or its competitors or its allies or even its antagonists. And then you have to learn how they see themselves. 
So certainly in one of my trips to the Middle East, we talked about Egypt. Egypt sees themselves as the great peacemakers in the Middle East. So you can see how that informs much of their decision-making, their diplomacy, and how they look at their neighbors. So in understanding how they see themselves, I think it gives insight into any negotiation as to what you can expect from the other side of the table. Yeah, so one thing came to mind when you were saying that, and that's the whole idea about framing. You know, how are you being framed by them and uh, how they frame themselves and how you're being framed? And also uh, that gives you insights and information to figure out, is that a framing I'm comfortable with and that I like and that serves me well? Or is there something about that framing that I might want to change because I'm not happy with that and maybe it disadvantages me in the negotiation because maybe I'm being cornered into a box. My potential is not being realized. I'm being cut off before I even have a chance to do anything. Did that happen to you? And if so, what were some of the things you might've done to try to shift how they framed you and how they thought of you? Well, I think some of that is certainly the way the other side may look at the issue may not even be accurate. It may not even be truthful. And so we have so much in our communications these days that is driven by disinformation, misinformation, propaganda, that we have to come to an understanding of what shared truth is as we begin a negotiation or we can't move at all. Or what is the background here? Can we agree on what brought us to this point? I think some of what we're seeing now in conferences on global warming is a great illustration of this. In what way you see that? We have those who still deny there is a problem. We have those who realize there is a problem. And then we have those who say it is very dire and we need to do something right now. So where is the middle ground? And how do we bring the people on the fringes towards the middle ground so that we can begin to take action? So you're mentioning shared truths, which leads me into some other ideas here. So in some cases that works well, right? Because other people want to be able to <clears throat> talk about a shared truth. And this sounds like there's an element of trust already there, or maybe you have to create and build the trust to even get to the shared truth. Have you found that in your experience? I think so, but I think we also have to talk about motivation. So can, can I have a reasonable expectation of trust in the person I am negotiating with? Because that may drive what I withhold, what I share, <clears throat> or how I approach if I don't feel like I can trust that they are doing the same. And I think that's, that can be very difficult if you're not sure about what you're facing or what the real, perhaps a hidden agenda might be. Yeah, so that leads me to, you know how all roads lead back to what you want them to lead back to. <laughs> but I'm just thinking about negotiation as communication, which I agree is all about communication. And I'm also thinking uh, what you're alluding to here is about relationship. So in my own work, I'm thinking about working with people and also coaching people on negotiation. And I think you're saying it as well, is that what's the relationship? Because you're coming in sometimes just cold. You don't know each other and you have to build the relationship and build the understanding. So it really is about relationship. And that's when you get to ascertain what the motivation is for the negotiation, if there are hidden agendas and how you build up the trust. Mm -hmm. So 
from your own experience, what were, and you've had a wealth of experience cross-culturally in many different ways, be it, of course, military, ethnic, and national cultures, and so on, gender. So what were some of the techniques you used in being able to build that, to build the relationship, to build the trust so that you can have an effective negotiation? Well, I think what we all are looking for is a sense of community. And that is very difficult to find these days when we have so many split audiences in our, even in our news or what we watch on television. There's very little that we can get into a taxi and start having a conversation with the driver about something that we might both even know about, much less agree upon. So it's very difficult to start building a common basis of experience. And I think that's where that that kind of a conversation starts. And to give you another military term for that, it's, well, first we have to do the kabuki dance. So, I've looked at Japan, so what do you mean by the kabuki dance? Well, you know, we, we dance around each other and we say, did you know this? Have you been there? Oh, I spent three years over here. And we established that we probably know some of the same people. We've been in the same places. We've had some shared experiences, even if we didn't know each other. And I think that's a beginning in a in a military sense of building a sense of community. And the same thing with being overseas. And one of the things I found in dealing with my German counterparts was my last name is German. So I had a little bit of that community sense to begin with. But if I had said my great grandparents came from Austria, they would be, no, you're an Austrian. No, I'm not. So I would not give them the information from which they could judge. Mm. So I would just say, well, I have a great love for this area. I feel like I'm home here. So I would make that initial gesture to say, I understand a little. Mm -hmm. And I found that that was very helpful in opening a door and, and inviting the other people, other parties to share. Good. So some people, I guess, would call... Some of what you're doing is establishing common ground and, and talking about that shared truth and the yeah. common ground. We may be very different. We may or may not be looking for different things from this negotiation, but there is a space in which we overlap and which we can connect to. So you're talking about your love of the area and people take pride in where they're from. So it's very strategic to do that. It probably is truthful, but very strategic as well. So I'm just curious then, um, what were some other things that you do in, in your negotiations. So for example, you talked a little bit about your preparation, determining which kind of a level it is. And I'm wondering, um, and then you try to find out about the other party, what happens during the process? So I separate negotiation into three phases. So there's the preparation mm -hmm. phase, then there's the actual process of being in the negotiation, and then there's the follow-up phase, right? And I think each of them mm -hmm. is important and each of them has its strengths. So we can talk more about preparation after, but during the process, what happens when things go according to plan? How do you build on that? Or what happens when things don't go according to plan and something happens that disturbs the flow or is a block or a hindrance for you moving forward in the way you want? Well, I think one, one truth is that people always tell you what they want, whether they realize they've done that or not. <clears throat> and so in some negotiations, you will find that it slips. Well, we think we really should be in charge of this effort. We think that this is where we should be in this process. And they may let that slip. 
even, even before the formal discussions begin. It depends on their experiences. Are they already angry, hyped up, worried, um, eager to make a point? And if so, it will come out very, very quickly. And, and I, I've seen that repeatedly where, okay, now I know exactly where we're going to go with this. So do you, so sometimes it's interesting, people slip, but then I wonder, did they slip intentionally or did they slip by accident? And why do they want me to know that? When you were talking about that, I was thinking about the whole concept of BATNA, the best alternative to a negotiated agreement. So before coming into the negotiation, right, you determine what your other options are. Mm -hmm. so you know just how critical this particular negotiation is. And of course, the more critical it is, the less you reveal that because then you lose some of your power in the negotiation and somebody may have power over. How does that play a role like in terms of your preparation and then in there as you're trying to figure out different kinds of information? <clears throat> well, certainly there's that little bit of research beforehand. So have there been previous negotiation sessions on this topic? And we already had these three groups come together and try to determine how we are going to set up this new organization. Are these three potential owners already jockeying for position? Who have they tried to influence? How have they tried to not influence, but manipulate the process? And where have they been to do it? So there have been some instances in which I've been able to tell, this is not going to go anywhere. And it's not going to be pleasant. So the best thing I can do is stall because there's not going to be an outcome. And I can, <clears throat> I can talk, I can listen, I can sound very interested. I can make notes, I can write up responses, but I know full well, we're not going anywhere for another one to two years. Wow. Because it's going to take that long for the emotional piece of, a that kind of a takeover discussion to get past it can you expand on that a little bit when you're talking about the emotional part of it well if i gain if i gain this unit as part of my organization that means you lose and if you lose structure it might affect the number of uh, support spaces you have in your headquarters it might support your rank being downgraded so it can be very difficult for you to agree with something, even if you think it would make sense, but not while I'm here, not on my watch. Oh, wow. So it sounds like people get a little bit territorial or defensive in that kind of moment because they feel they're losing. That's a very subtle way to put it. <laughs> it's more extreme than that. It's, well, it's I more personal than that. And I think some of this is for an organization with stated values and, and a long history and traditions, all of that gets tied up in there as well. We can't lose this because our tradition has been. We can't lose our position because traditionally we have done these things. And so all of that comes into play. Yeah, I'm thinking about um, people's egos getting wounded but the other part that I think you're alluding to as well is that there's the public persona, the public face of it. So uh, you can be negotiating with somebody and they can be negotiating with you, but then when they have to go back and tell somebody else what they negotiated, 
then they have to renegotiate with somebody else, even on their side, because then <clears> you negotiated <throat> what? You agreed to what? What were you, you thinking? gave that up? How could you? Right, right. <clears throat> this whole bravado that has to take place, even though they may agree with you and agree there really is no way out, but maybe they're stalling also, hoping or trying to figure out a way to hold on to what they can. So since you talked about that you also had lots of experience as a civilian outside of the military, I'm wondering then, in your preparation, you talked about tactical, operational, strategic. Did those kinds of levels also play a role in your preparation in non-military negotiations? Or yes, because I, I found it very valuable to as a way to look at, you know, I might not change the world today, but today I can do these tasks that will either make tomorrow easier for me in an operational sense, or they will fulfill part of my plan strategically going forward. So I have a website too for my book. I don't like working on it. I don't like writing a newsletter um, because it's one more thing. It's one more task. So I try to write two or three of them at a time and then put them aside because the most difficult thing in the world is to create and the most natural thing is to edit. So I like coming back as the editor and fixing it later. So I, I try to um, arrange my day in those thirds, if you will, not not consciously perhaps, but let me do, everything has to get done in the end. So let me do the things that are easy first, or sometimes it's, let's do the hardest one first and get it over with. Mm -hmm. But I think that has worked for me too, as my transition into becoming a communications consultant and working as an author. There are some days you just don't feel creative and <clears throat> don't want to write. So those are the days I will do the admin tasks of everything else that goes with that, that I don't want to do on days when I'm feeling like, hey, I've got, this is good. I'm, I'm doing well right now. I'm just going to stick with this for four, four or five more hours. Yeah. Some people call negotiation a small N and big N negotiations. So one way of thinking about it could be informal versus formal. But as you're breaking it down into these different categories, I'm kind of feeling like there's so much more to a strategic negotiation, because it is deeper, more complex, more longer term, that maybe it is more of an, a big end and also like a series of negotiations. Well, I think maybe a big end would be, here is the team from Russia and here's the team from the United States, the State Department, and what they are going to negotiate in terms of locations of missiles or a peace agreement, those types of things. Those are big ends. And they're even more difficult, the more people involved the more history involved, the use of interpreters is always an issue because you have to be certain if you're using interpreters, they are interpreting it correctly by the word and not just intent because I've seen some problems with that in negotiations as well. I imagine that gets tricky too with just the word because the different meanings and the nuances. I think, I agree. I think translation is really tough. So for both of us who care very much about communication and how things are said and why they're phrased the way they are and why are they not saying it this way? Why are they saying it that way? What are they not saying? What's being omitted? Working with a translator, which means you one step removed from that immediate contact. Because I'm always looking to see how people are framing what they're framing and how they're phrasing it, how they're describing it. And it really is different mm -hmm. to go to a different language. And it's a little bit of a, 
a disability there to come back because you're not quite sure if they captured exactly what you wanted the way you wanted it. And it's always good to have some people in the room who are bilingual. Yeah. So certainly I was talking to uh, one of my German counterparts and one of my colleagues who also speaks French said something to him in French thinking I wouldn't understand. And when I did, but I let it go for a while until I knew what was going on in the conversations. And he was, the colleague was giving advice to the person on the other side of the table on how to speak to me. And finally, I just stopped it. But I let them go to a point where they would be embarrassed. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So um, what else are you looking for in the communication aspect, you know, especially when you're working across different languages, when you don't have direct access to the language, do you notice their body language or expressions or how they hold themselves? Like, what do you look for? Some of that is different enough that I don't think sometimes you can read too much into it. If you deal with a number of military personnel, they're going to be more formal in those types of settings anyway. Um, but certainly you can read expressions and you can read glances between members of the same team. You can see who's passing notes to each other, just like in school. And what, the, what they're thinking is, this is really not working. Why, why don't we just put this off for a few days? And you can also tell when it's time for you to give the other side a graceful exit. Hmm. What would you call might, a graceful exit? We might need to take a break now. I'm very tired. You must probably be as well. So perhaps we can come back at this in a few days. Okay, so building on some of the successes you've had, what are some important takeaways you've had where you say, you know, that really worked well. I'm going to remember to put that in my toolkit, to put that in my negotiation repertoire. What are some of those tips you might have about what's worked really well? One thing that has always worked very well for me is humor, uh. um, <clears throat> especially if there is a, a tense aspect to a situation. And if I'm coming in as a senior executive, people do not expect the senior executives to be humorous. Particularly, they don't expect senior women to be funny. So I will do some of that at the beginning, a little self-deprecating humor. Let's, let's take this down a notch, put everyone at ease, and see if we can't start. We're going to be formal, but we need to have just a little bit of a breather here so we can realize we can talk to each other. And that's the intent of it. So is there a risk at self-deprecating humor? And I, I say this because you're a woman. So you have the rank, you have the title, positional title that gives you that authority. <clears throat> because you're a woman, that doesn't detract from it? Just asking, because some people feel that it might. If some person might feel that that was an invitation, they would quickly learn that it was not. <laughs> In a not so subtle way. Right? In a There's... not so subtle way. <laughs> right, right. Okay. And um, so humor, that's that's a nice one too. And um, it doesn't mean telling jokes. I get it. You know what it means? No. It's very subtle too, because that can also be misconstrued sometimes, because I also like to use humor. It can be. And I think jokes are dangerous. So that's why I say self-deprecating, not that I put myself down, but I do not put down anyone else. Right. I might make comments about um, 
what kind of a day it is, or in one instance, I told a story that was designed to let everyone in the room know that I realized they did not accept me because I was not one of them. And it was funny. And at the end of it, I got absolute attention. It's like, I see who you, for you, you for who you are. And uh, any situations you've been in that did not work well, and you said, well, I'm not going to do that again, or I'm not going to go there, I'm going to be more aware of what? So what are some of those kinds of lessons? Sure. I had a job interview um, right after I retired for a senior executive position in the Pentagon. And the individual who was going to be my boss, I had already been selected for the position, and I was not even reporting yet. I was not to report for another two weeks. When he asked me to come in and then proceeded to give me an initial job counseling that was negative, things you need to watch out for, you better watch your back, you're going to have problems with this, and don't think I'm going to help you, and here, sign it right here. And I was like, mm. Mm, no. And I walked away. Now, it took me a long time, I think, to be able to see something that like that freight train coming right at you. But I was smart enough at that point to not do that and walk away. Yeah, if you figure that if he was saying or she was saying all those things at that time, it could not work going to go after that. It was going to go downhill as I learned from others who worked there that the, how miserable they were. <clears throat> I don't need this that badly. Okay, and what about in your other roles? When you've already been in a situation and you needed to negotiate something else, either operational, tactical, strategic, that may have gone awry because you didn't anticipate somebody else saying something or doing something or some other complication. How did you that know, affect you? I think you can tell sometimes when there are things that have happened behind your back, whether there's a, a meeting you weren't invited to or a piece of correspondence you weren't privy to. And I think in those situations, one of the things I found that works powerfully well is just waiting it out. Because both sides who are engineering this confrontation, if that's what it is intended to be, are waiting to see a reaction. And when they don't get it, you know, they're anticipating this, they want this. And when it doesn't happen, they're finally forced to come to you and say, well, what did you think? Because then it's a confession when they do that. And so then I have them. I'm glad you mentioned waiting it out because I think about timing. And one of the things about being successful, I think, in negotiation is managing the timing, managing yourself in the time. For example, some people mm -hmm. might rush you through something and then you get caught off guard and you get caught up in the moment. And then suddenly you agree to something you really never should have agreed to and slowing down the process and really holding out. So then everything kicks in in the way it should. And if it's really important and something that you really want to resolve and they really want to resolve, then it will happen in due time. But rushing it is just going to catch you off guard. And some people use that as a tactic. So I always want <clears throat> people to try to manage and control their timing in it. Mm -hmm. So that's one of those lessons from doing media relations where in an on-camera interview, the interviewer takes a step towards you, forcing you to back up. We don't see them, but on the camera, we see you backing up. So wow. that was that's how I think of that in terms of someone trying to rush 
through a negotiation. And what I do then is I go even more slow. Yeah. Enunciating each word. So what does that mean in the media world? Like if uh, somebody sees you during an interview backing up, what does that symbolize or represent? Well, it depends on the questioning, but certainly you look like you're unsure or you're yeah. you're lying or you're upset. And you probably are upset if they're moving into your personal space. Yeah, yeah. Which is the intent. And I do I used to do that in media training to see if I could get people to back up. And usually I could. And then on the opposite way. So if somebody came closer, you would just hold your ground and just stay hold there. Hold your ground. Mm-hmm. <laughs> face to face. So we're coming towards the end of our conversation. I'm just wondering, are there any other comments you'd like to make? Any tips you'd like to share with the audience about some of your successes? Any words of encouragement? Whatever comes to mind that we haven't touched on. Well, so here I am in my first negotiation for a book contract. I have not done this before. I don't know how this kabuki dance goes. Okay. So I do as much research as I can online. I'm not doing it. My agent is doing it. But and I, I know they're probably very tired of me because I want to know, what does this mean? What does this line mean? How does this go? I want to know exactly what this is saying so that I understand every bit of it. So I am not surprised by anything in it. So here comes the cover for the book. And my agent says, do you like it? And I said, no. Well, you can tell them you don't like it, but remember in the contract, they have the last say. which is typical. So by now I know this is typical and they get to pick it because they've done all the focus group testing and they know what will work. So they asked me, do you like it? And I said, well, I think that what it does is present only one side of the whole concept here. But can you tell me what you found in your your focus group testing? So I get them to try to change my mind. And I think in that instance, while I really didn't like it, I needed to be open enough to learn how they did what they did. And that's a difficult thing to do. It is, but it sounds very clever too, because what you're doing is you're opening up a space to have the conversation rather than just slamming the door saying, no, I don't like it then. Well, we like it, you know, but I think that's, (laughs) and we're going to do it. Right. So it could be adversarial where they say, well, this is what the cover we want, and this is what we found, and you may not like it. But then what's the point of publishing somebody if you're going to have an adversarial relationship with them? Don't you want to have a good relationship and really support your authors? So it makes sense. So it's a nice way you approach that. And you're talking about different languages, and you said you looked at the words in the contract. What does it mean? And you mentioned earlier that there were different terminologies used across different branches, and you had to learn what that was. So same here with contract, contract ease, legalese, and mm-hmm. publishing. Yes, and besides that relationship, you never know where relationships go in the future. So if I had been a pain about not liking the cover, would I have gotten another two-book deal with this publisher? No. No. And you did? And I did. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Because they wouldn't want to work with you again because you're difficult. That's right. And you get labeled. You don't want that one. And then people in the industry talk to each other. Mm-hmm. So, yes. yeah, very clever. In every industry they do. So that's, that's, that's always something to keep in mind. That's right. That's right. 
So anything else you'd like to share with us before we close? No, but I'm excited to see your book when it comes out and I will be looking for it. I'm excited too. I'm probably going to ask you to read it and give a review. So I would love to. I would oh, love thank to. you so much. That would be great. Well, thank you so much, Mary Kay, for spending time with me today in this conversation. And I look forward to reading your book. I have it on my Kindle. So I need to actually read it now, which I will. It's a process, you know, but I'm going to read it send you some email or some notes after I read it, give it some comments. When it's on Kindle, that means you read it on the plane. That's right. I haven't. Okay. I have a flight at the beginning of December. That's the book. There you go. <laughs> All righty. Thank you so much. Thank Bye you. now. It was good to talk with you. Same here. Bye-bye now. Bye. That was a wonderful conversation with Mary Kay Eater and some of the tips and strategies she uses when she negotiates in her illustrious career. And I would like to pick up on two parts of what she said. One is really about preparation, which is dear to my heart, because I think preparation is critical in any negotiation. And in chapter nine in my upcoming book, New Story, New Power, A Woman's Guide to Negotiation, I talk about preparation and introduce a whole set of tools that you can use to help you prepare. And then there are case studies at the end of the book, which also amplify the use of those particular tools. And Mary Kay used a framework where she said it was tactical, operational, strategic, and that those are different levels of preparation and what she's preparing for. So of course, you have to know what is the negotiation about? What are the issues? Who am I negotiating with? Another way I was thinking about that is that the tactical can be like small end negotiation, because they're smaller in scope and frame, maybe impact but that they add up and lead into supporting the strategic planning that you're doing for your negotiation and vice versa, where you can have your strategy and then you think down to the smaller parts of what makes that into a big strategy. So the tactical and operational parts. The second part I wanted to pick up on is she mentioned that the more she used it, the more it becomes part of her subconscious so that as soon as she hears negotiation, it kicks in and she starts to use those preparation tools or that preparation framework and how to think about it. And that connects to something I talk about with neuroplasticity in chapter two about the brain and how we create our habits and that they say you can't teach a new dog, an old dog, sorry, new tricks, but of course you can. And here's a way of doing that is that you're learning something new, a new tool, a new way of approaching preparation for your negotiation. You're wiring different neurons together and you're creating those grooves so that it becomes part of your subconscious and just a habit of how you engage in preparing for negotiations. So thank you very much.